June Middle. I call this my Baptist preacher's self-restraint device. So. Where are we going? 57 minutes? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> the passage that Bertram read in our hearing, context is, is always pretext, and you need to know that it comes after the majority of what we know to be the sermon on the Mount. And we know the Sermon on the Mount whether we know we know it or not. It's that place where we hear that we're the salt of the earth and the light of the world and that not to hide our light under a bushel and that indeed if somebody harms us to turn the other cheek. Uh, we also understand that in the Beatitudes that are part of the Sermon on the Mount that uh, the meek shall inherit the earth. But after all of that wonderful discourse that Jesus shares on the mount with the gathered crowd on how to live, if you will, this, this life that, that he represents in its full measure, he concludes that portion with a discourse on worry. Now, I wish I could stand here this morning and tell you that I have the formula it's applicable to us all on how not to ever worry. But by full disclosure, that's not going to happen. The reality is that anxieties and worries are a legitimate part of our landscape. That doesn't mean there aren't ways to tackle this, and we'll talk about that as this sermon unfolds, but it's important to acknowledge that we do indeed have to acknowledge the fractiousness of the times in which we live. I don't know about you, but I just saw the report, the environmental outlook report that was, uh, if you will, strategically released on a holiday weekend so that it supposedly wouldn't garner as much attention as it might otherwise, that basically tells us we're cooked. And the fact is, is that it's not born out of anything other than corporate greed and consummate ignorance about taking care and nurturing this environment. It worries me, even if I may not be around when the majority of the calamity unfolds, but it worries me nevertheless because I think about those who will yet come. I worry about the fact that we are indeed a society in crisis and in alienation. There was another report that I read the other day. It looks like all these reports, I guess, came out when they figured nobody would read them. But the fact that some demographers are upset that the information about the reality that by mid-century or thereabouts, the United States of America will be primarily, by way of majority, a place of people of color. Demographers, amen, amen. But listen, but listen. But, but demographers, some demographers are upset that that information is getting out there because they're worried that it will fuel discontent among those who find themselves threatened by that reality. Well, sorry, not sorry. <laughs> but the fact is, though, even though we can say that, when, when, when that concern and, and that, 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 if you will, panic is sanctioned and fueled, by people in the highest offices in power in this country. Not only is it a travesty and a crime, but yes, it has me worried. People can 
take the lives of others with impunity and think that they're doing something that is preserving their way of life. Julie and I are blessed with two wonderful, wonderful daughters. And while I'm not under any illusion that for any person of color in America, there are challenges absolute. But we often talk about the fact that were we to have had a son, what would be the daily regimen on our part of sending a young black boy out into the world? Where again, <laughs> it's almost, not even almost, the, the reality is what we saw in Alabama just the other day, a life was taken and it was deemed collateral damage. Oh, he wasn't the right person. But the fact that we live in a society where one's life is in peril simply because of the nature of who one is gives me cause for worry and, yes, as Kierkegaard might even say, dread. Okay, so there's a lot out there to worry about. But I come from and I'm not bragging about this, I'm saying it with humility. I come from good stock. I come from a lineage, a line of people who understood in the face of difficult odds, overwhelming odds, how not to be succumbed, how not to succumb, how not to be defeated. So there's something out here that allows for us to endure and yet to even overcome in the face of those concerns and those worries, while even as Jesus talks about them in the passage that was read, the things that give us cause for concern, and we add to them. You heard them even just now in the moment of corporate prayer that we had, so many of the things that you raised. While you weren't necessarily raising them in a, in a sense of anxiety, but you were pointing out the fact that there are things that we must be concerned about. So, I've got to believe that there's a way to navigate through this kind of circumstance. And where is the, the peace? Where is the security? And here we are on the reign of God Sunday. Often, as Jackie mentioned, called by some Christ the King Sunday. But I think more appropriately and more to this moment, we talk about the idea, the pervasiveness of the idea of love and the, pre the presence of a God in the midst of our concerns and our travails. So where is this reign of God? Well, I say that we should look for God's faithfulness, not always in the sweeping big things. But you know, I think Jesus uses the lily of the field and the sparrow of the air in his examples as he's talking for a reason, because I think what he's saying is that these things in their smallness and in their fragility are just as important and just as much the object of divine focus as those things and places that represent power and authority. So I believe that we should take Comfort in the fact that God is concerned not just, again, with the big things, but with the small things. And dare I say, in some people's imaginations, the insignificant things. It's good for us to know that if God is concerned about the lily of the field and the sparrow of the air, then God must be in our business, too. And I can colloquialize it and say that God is all up in our business. 
And the good thing about that is that God is in our business, not just simply in those moments where we shine and feel good, but God is in our business, in our vulnerabilities, in our cracks, in our fissures, in our embarrassments, in our warts. That's where I want the reign of God to be active. I can shine and look good all on my own. But when it comes to those moments of hurt and pain where I need that measure of support that can come from that divine presence, that's where I trust indeed that God is most present. The reign of God is most powerful in unimpressive places. The broken, the poor, the discarded, the ignored places. Apologies to Isaiah who in his vision says he saw the Lord high and lifted up in the temple and with the smoke and the angels surrounding him. That's all well and good. And in the next several weeks, we will, in the season of Advent, we will talk about the the oncoming presence of God in the world, if you will. But the element of definition for God in the world that we will use is Emmanuel, God with us. Not God looming above us, not God distantly out of reach, but God with us in the difficult and fragile places. So that's the where. But what is this reign of God? Well, I think it's pretty jarring in its simplicity. I think that maybe Jesus had in the back of his mind in this this treatise that he was sharing what Micah says in the sixth chapter, that what God requires of us to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. To be in harmony with God, with others, with creation, and with ourselves. You know, for some people, complexity is impressive. I think, you know, no shade, but I think that's why the royal family holds such allure, because everything they do is so complex. Stand here, turn here, bow here, lift up here, do X, whatever. Now, you know, I'm glad that Megan has added a little spice to it, hey, but. (laughs) But the reality is that sometimes we see that complexity as impressive, but the reality is maybe it's impressive to some people because in some respects it's unattainable. So the good news is that I'm not talking about a complexity in the the context of the reign of God that's distant and unattainable. I'm talking about an intimacy that's available to us now. So the reign of God calls on us to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. So all these other things that Jesus is talking about, not to worry about what we have to eat or to drink, he's not saying by any stretch of the imagination to be fatalistic, no. He's saying that in order for all of those things to be in proper sequence and priority, seek first the realm of God and it's justice, and then all these things will be added to you. So if I'm about the business of living out the reign of God in the way in which I seek justice and mercy and righteousness for others, then all of these other things fall into place. And it doesn't mean that we won't have things that give us worry, but it means we'll find the mechanism and the vehicle to address and to to relate to and to tackle those things. So when the realm, when the reign of God is lived on earth, that is when all people have dignity, when the open table of fellowship is practiced by all, 
when hierarchy is upended, when all people are treated as beloved by God, then there will be peace and plenty and more than enough for everyone. So, this reign of God, this small scale, human scale, not grandiose, this reign of God comes about when we do the work of the realm, when we live out justice and mercy and love, unadulterated, unapologetic, radical love. But you know something? I'm a firm believer that while you can theorize these things, you, you got to feel them too. So, so maybe the third and final element I want us to think about is as we talk about this whole idea of the reign of God and we talk about the presence and the power of God and we talk about the fact that God indeed speaks into the context of our human scale and that indeed God calls us to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. But how does it feel to be wrapped up in that relationship? There's an old hymn we used to sing Safe in God's arms. There was another one that I think we'll hear a little bit more of today, leaning on the everlasting arms. And I like the idea. When I think about the reign of God, I think about a close-in relationship. I think about the idea that, that there's someone in the power and the presence of the divine who sustains me, who uplifts me, who leads me and guides me and nurtures me, even in the midst of of my faltering moments. When I think about what it means to trust God for God's presence and God's sustaining and nurturing love, I don't think of a king on a throne seated high. In fact, I don't know if you've seen the movie Moonlight. It's a powerful, powerful movie. And my favorite scene in the movie is when Juan, played by Mahershala Ali, and Little, played by Alex Hibbert, are at the ocean. And Juan takes Little there to teach this little black boy how to swim. Now here's the thing. God is a very present help in trouble. When the waves might overtake me, when my flagging spirit may cause me to go under, God is there. That's the reign of God that speaks to my life. So there are many things that I would ask of God. I'd, I'd ask God for protection. I'd ask God for guidance. But mostly and foremost, I want God <laughs> to teach me how to swim. Give me your head. Hey, let your head rest in my hand. Relax. I got you, I promise. I'm not gonna let you go. Hey, man, I got you. There you go. 
one second. See that right there? You in the middle of the world, man. Swimming. You wanna try? You ready to swim? <laughs> 